Hello, Atlantic. Uh, Welcome to our third episode of Wellness at Work with Wes. Uh, We have got a really exciting uh, episode here for you guys today. Um, As everyone knows, uh, through our wellness journey over the last six or seven years, uh, we've continued to evolve what our wellness program is, um, and we've really tried to uh, look at the whole person, look at health and wellness from a very holistic perspective. Um, And as everyone knows, uh, wellness is not just about diet. It's just not about exercise. It's really looking at all aspects of your life and how you can live in the most integrated way possible. Um, Certainly uh, one area that we focused on recently is mindfulness, stress reduction, um, and Lynn Talley has has brought that to us. And uh, we have a guest here today who's really an expert uh, in, in that area as well. Um, I'm really excited to uh, welcome Lair Torrent to the to the show today. Um, to give you guys a little bit of background on Lair, um, I've known Lair for four or five years. He's been a good friend of mine. Um, he is a clinically trained and licensed psychotherapist, uh, an an expert in Eastern based mindfulness practices. Uh, his work focuses on our relationships, relationships to our partners, to ourselves, to our work. Uh, and what we want to manifest in the world. Uh, He's been interviewed and resourced for his expertise by such notable publications and news outlets as the New York Times, uh, National Public Radio, Rolling Stone Magazine. Lair has been a contributing columnist to Inc.com, a frequent contributor to the Elephant Journal, Um, He has coached the heads of Fortune 500 companies and celebrities from the Broadway stage to the silver screen. Uh, His private practice is global, reaching all four corners of the world. That's right. Welcome, Lair. Thanks. Good to have you. Now I got to live up to that. You got to live up to that. Um, You know, uh, Lair works with a lot of individuals. He works with a lot of couples, uh, but he also works um, in a lot of corporate environments and works with... uh, companies um, on how employees can better communicate, uh, how people show up um, in their relationships uh, with their superiors and with their fellow employees. Um, And I thought that he would be a great guest here today just to talk a little bit about um, how we all show up and and how we can better communicate um, within our our organization um, and and hopefully uh, have more healthy relationships uh, at work. Um, So, with that, um, Lair, again, welcome. Thank you for being on the show. And Thanks for um, me. tell us just a little bit about your practice, um, you know, a little history on you and, and how you got involved specifically uh, in the corporate side of the work you do. And, um, and then we'll kind of dig into uh, to, to the deeper depths. Okay. So um, I started out just having a regular psychotherapy practice and thinking, you know, I'm just going to see couples and individuals and that'll be what it is. I never really thought I would enter the business sector. I call myself a reluctant corporate coach. Um, yeah. Uh, it, someone asked me once because I was, uh, talking with a, uh, an entrepreneur who happened to be in my practice and he said to me, you know, how many business folks, how many entrepreneurs and people in the business sector do you have in your practice? And I said, I don't know, maybe four or five tops. I went back and looked at the, at the roster of, of clients, and it was about 60% of people who were coming to see me, not just about their relationships to themselves, but their relationships, obviously, to their partners, um, but ultimately their relationship to their work. 
And I found that we have a significant and profound relationship to our work and that if that relationship is not healthy, ultimately we're not healthy. All the stats prove, prove that out. Sure. Yeah, I was reading something the other day. I was talking about, you know, your work life and try, when you try to separate your work life from your other life, it's a really difficult thing to do because your work life is a big part of your life life. You know, I mean, it's a lot of what we do. And so if things aren't working uh, at the office, um, it translates into all the other parts of your life, your family life, your personal life, everything else. So, um, you know, certainly focusing on having a healthy work environment is, is critical to our overall health and wellness. Uh, certainly a lot of that starts with, um, you know, just uh, our person, our, you know, our physical health and, and, and how we show up. But but um, the, the, the mental health side of things and how we communicate with people and uh, how we show up is certainly a big piece of it. Um, and and I, I really believe that as employers, uh, we have a responsibility to create a healthy work environment for our employees. And, and that's really what our wellness program has really been about. But, um, you know, stress seems to be, you know, sort of the mm-hmm. preeminent, you know, thing that people talk about today, stress reduction, you mm-hmm. know, and I think... Um, you know, historically, when you look at work in America, it's been, you know, uh, busy has been what's been glorified. Sure. The busier I am, the more hours I work in the day, the, you know, the more time I spend at my computer, that's what means, you know, that means I'm, I'm working, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that paradigm is starting to shift. Uh, I think, you know, we're seeing that, um, you know, people that are, too stressed out that are too tied to a computer that don't have time to de-stress are actually less productive. Um, is that something you see in your practice is, you know, using mindfulness practices? I mean, how does that translate for, for your clients? It's the basis and the fundamental piece for me and my work. Um, and I think you're right. Uh, we come from a culture of people who, uh, not too long ago, you know, being stressed out, being, uh, you know, running it out at both ends, um, that was, you know, considered a badge of honor. That's starting to shift as, you know, people are, are, are not mentally, emotionally, physically, spiritually, particularly healthy. Um, I feel like it's why men tend to die sooner than women, um, carrying so much stress and really not knowing how to deal with it. Uh, I think typically women, um, tend to process their stress a little bit better than we do since they have a typically a larger, a broader uh, emotional vocabulary. Uh, that aside, um, I try to bring mindfulness to the forefront of my practice because um, it actually shuts off the stress response within us. We spend about 70% of our waking lives in some kind of stress response. That's a staggering statistic when you think about it that um, we spend so much time in stress response that we don't actually know what's happening anymore. It's just sort of our baseline. Is, is it, When you say stress response, is that the same thing as like fight or flight? Yep. Okay. That's exactly right. It's a mini fight flight response. And again, we've become so used to doing that, that uh, we don't even really notice it anymore. And what we're actually doing is we're inundating our bodies with a toxic cocktail of stress hormone day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. And then we're kind of wondering why, when we get a little bit later in our lives, why we're so rickety, why we're not feeling well, why our parts aren't working the way they should. And if you read any of Dr. Joe Dispenza's stuff, you know, he talks about uh, stress hormones and how it's actually making the outer membrane of the cell uh, brittle. And it's making us really sick. It's dis-ease in our nervous system 
we call that stress, uh, is actually causing disease in the body. Disease. Disease. And disease. disease. Exactly. Yeah. And so that's on a really uh, fundamental, basic level we're making ourselves sick. And it's making us sick in two ways. One, it's, it's making us uh, susceptible to whatever's in our environment. And you hear that all the time. Well, when I'm stressed out, I, I, get to, I tend to get sick because my, my, um, um, my, my ability to fight off uh, illness is, is compromised. But it's also, it's also making us susceptible to our genetic coding. And that's the scary piece, right? So the, the, the disease that happens to trend in our families we will be more susceptible to that if we are inundating our, our bodies with this stress hormone over and over again, year after year, right? So this becomes an imperative for me and my practice with trying to keep my folks healthy and keep their relationship to what they do a healthy one. So your relationship to your work, uh, keeping that healthy, that becomes an imperative as well. And mindfulness becomes that tool because again, when we stop and we just do that simple act of pushing the pause button, on our thoughts, on our feelings. Not that we get to choose our thoughts and choose our feelings, we don't. Those are what they are. We get to choose how we respond. Most of us just respond. Our knee-jerk reaction, we go into that fight flight, we have that mini, the amygdala fires off, and we're down the road on this. Mindfulness lets us interrupt that, and that's an amazingly powerful tool. And so I don't think we can practice that enough or stress uh, enough how important that is to our employees, to our families, to our friends, anyone we care about. Well, in a, you know, in an office environment, in a work environment, I mean, I, I think everyone at Atlantic, probably anyone listening to this podcast who has a, has a corporate type job can relate to exactly what you're saying. I know I certainly can. You have those points in your day where it's just going from one thing to the next, the phone's ringing, the emails are coming in and, and literally it does feel like I'm being chased by a tiger, you know, all day long, you know, <laughs> and back to your cave, you know, and then with, with, without any sort of interruption to that at the end of the day, you're completely frapped out, your head hurts, you get home, you're short with your wife or whoever else, you don't sleep well that night, and it's just sort of this endless cycle. I think, you know, all of us have, have dealt with that. Um, and, you know, I think what you're describing is mindfulness really can be one way to break that cycle. So um, can you explain a little bit about what that looks like in practice, you know, for you know, uh, for you know, someone who works at Atlantic, if they are feeling that that sense of you know, I am I am being chased by that tiger. What what is what are the steps to to, to interrupt it? I mean, um, we've talked about you know taking mindfulness breaks and the power of the breath and things like that. But what, when you work with your clients, I mean, are there certain practices that you find are the most effective? Are there practices that are more effective in a work environment versus at home or, you know? I think the, the practices kind of translate to wherever you are. I like mindfulness because you, wherever you go, there it is. It's with you. You don't have to remember to bring it. Well, actually, you do have to remember. I think the hardest thing about mindfulness is remembering to do it. 25 years of practice, the hardest thing for me in mindfulness is actually remembering to do it. And so what I do with my clients is, is I try to put it on the map for them. I try to make mindfulness a habit, a habit, something that they go to. So the first thing I say to them is, okay, let's do the three-minute breathing space three times a day. Set a phone uh, reminder to stop in the morning, stop in the afternoon, stop in the evening, and just take three to four mindful breaths, take three to four mindful moments just to kind of check in with yourself. And I know that's not new news, but that's the key piece, I think, is putting it on the map and doing it every day and making it one of those things that if I don't do it, then I'm kind of like, what am I missing? 
Now, the other thing that I like to teach my clients to do, and, um, you know, this is a little bit uh, down the road on the learning curve, but I do, I have them do what I call dropping into their body. And, you know, the brain is this big, massive, uh, powerful uh, organism that, you know, we're sending people to the moon and we're doing all kinds of crazy things with this brain of ours. And it tends to rule the roost. And when I ask people to, uh, um, if I, I ask people, do you think about your emotions or do you feel about your emotions? And when they think about it, they go, I tend to think about my emotions, right? <laughs> right. And you're supposed to feel them. Right. News, right? right? You're yeah. supposed to feel them. And they're like, well, what do you mean? And I'm like, what do you mean? What do I mean? They're your feelings. What do you, what do you feel? Right. And so they'll start telling me this very logical piece about how they feel. And unfortunately, that doesn't actually help you process your feelings or your stress. That just, you're just trying to find a way out of how you already feel when you're thinking about it. The mind and the ego, I think, conspire to try and get you to think of some stuff that's going to make you not feel stressed out or angst ridden or whatever it is. If I'm pissed off and I just think I'm, Hey, I'm thinking I'm pissed off. It doesn't really change the fact that I'm pissed off. Right. But you're going to tell yourself a nice long narrative about why you're pissed off and what that guy did or didn't do or should have done. And what you're doing is you're continuing the cycle. You're you're continuing to create those stress hormones in your body. And so if you don't want to feel that way, you'll think about your, you'll, you'll go, okay, well, if I just, you know, take some breaths and I don't, I think, well, um, you know, here's a reason why I shouldn't feel this way. Here's, here's a fix to that. And then your, I always say your ego creeps up behind you and goes, well, did you think of this? And you're like, Oh my <laughs> God, I didn't think of that. Right. And so you're back on that treadmill. Right. And so then the mind comes, well, okay, we don't have to feel angst written about that because we'll just do this thing and we'll fix that that way. And then the ego comes back up and goes, what about this? And you're like, Oh my God, I didn't think about that. And we're back on that treadmill. I like to say that the ego experience is a little death when we learn to drop into our bodies and actually experience our feelings, right? Actually, what we're talking about is we're talking about chemicals in our body. We call them feelings. And we can locate them somewhere in our throat, chest, stomach, solar plexus, somewhere in our torso. We tend to feel them there. And when we drop in and we locate that energy in our body and are just present for it, it sucks, (laughs) <laughs> it just doesn't feel great. Right? right. And so people run from it. They don't want to feel that way. And I think we've pathologized our feelings in our culture. And I think we need to learn that sometimes we need to feel sad. Sometimes we need to feel frustrated, angry, but that's not a thought. That's a feeling. And that's an, an interesting way. I think and, and often, um, nouveau way of thinking about processing your stress to actually feel your feelings. Now, uh, if you read any of um, Dr. David Hawking's books, I know that you've read some of those. Uh, if you read Eckhart Tolle, The Power of Now, they unpack this, exp- this, this process of dropping into your body and actually feeling your feelings. Now, what I know is people don't want to do that. And so I have to corral my clients again and again, go back to your body, feel your feelings. That's how you actually process your stress mindfully. By dropping in and feeling the energy of what's in your body, you will let it go. Now, people will tell you, no, just let it go. Like, how do you do that? I don't actually know how to do that unless I stop thinking about my feelings and start feeling about them. 
Well, I think what you're also talking about is is sort of the mind-body connection. And I think, you know, historically in our culture, we have tried to separate those two things, that what's going on in my head and what's going on in my body are two different things. But your brain and your nervous system is in your body. You're wired to fire together. Exactly. Th- those things are not mutually exclusive. No, they are not. Um, and at least in my experience, and I think what you're describing is, you know, allowing your body to process these whatever emotions, they can be joyful emotions, um, but certainly stress emotions, um, you know, more, you know, more what we call the negative emotions of, of fear and sadness and things like that. The, you know, the body is programmed to allow those things to process through it, through, uh, through these practices. Um, I was reading something the other day, you see animals, uh, when they get into a fear state, lots of animals will shake yep. uncontrollably. And, you know, humans don't tend to do that. Uh, what I was reading was saying, you know, that that is a way for animals to release stress. You know, you ever seen a dog that just just sort of shakes it's a it's a way to release stress that they're feeling in their body um but humans have sort of moved away from that um but uh anyway just a, on a sidebar well there. no that that when you watch um you know uh, any of those those shows where you see a lion chasing a gazelle on the serengeti and the gazelle happens to get away and they get they do a little uh couple of seconds on that gazelle kind of shake literally shaking it off and that's what they're doing. They're, they're in their bodies. They're not up in their heads because they're not going to think about what just happened. They're going to feel about what happened. And we've gotten away from that. And you're exactly right. And so what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to get people to kind of go back to that. Now, the fight that I get with people is, well, what if I'm not thinking about it? If I'm not thinking about my problems, then, you know, something's going to get away from me. I mean, that's actually not true. Uh, as Einstein said, he said, you know, I, I can think about a, a problem or a situation in my lab for hours and hours and hours. I go jump in the pool and swim and suddenly Eureka. Why? It's because he's not in his head anymore. Right. And he was onto that early on. And that's where innovation comes from, being in the body. Uh, that's where, where um, you know, great works of art come from. It's when you see people in the zone, right? If you ask Michael the flow Jordan, state. the flow state, this is what this is. But we're afraid. If I don't think about it, then I'm going to miss something. That's actually not true. The brain is so powerful. It's going to do the amazing things it's going to do, it's supposed to do, if you allow it. Now, if you drop into your body um, and allow yourself to just be there. Now, you go and ask Michael Jordan. Ask him if you ever get the opportunity. What were you thinking when you hit that buzzer beater to, to, to win the title? You know what he's going to tell you? Are you crazy? I wasn't thinking anything. Right? He might not say I was, in, I was in my body. He'll say I was in the flow. If you ask anyone who's hit a putt to win the Masters what they were thinking when they were standing over that ball, they weren't thinking anything. No, they all say I was completely calm. Right. Focused. Right. So I had the experience of trying this not too long ago. It's never uh, happened to me in golf, by the way. I wouldn't think. <laughs> it has never happened to me either. So I was, I was out on my surfboard, and my wife was on the beach, and... Um, I thought about this. I was like, let's just try this stuff that I've been teaching my clients. Let's see if it works. Um, so I, should, been teaching I, should, I should probably try <laughs> it, right? right? Yeah. So you've been teaching so it. So I'm yeah. out there and I thought, okay, so just drop into your body. And so I brought my consciousness, my awareness into my body. And if you do this, you're going to notice something really crazy. There is an aliveness about the body, right? There is an electromagnetic field that runs through your body. They call it the chi energy. And you can actually feel that if you give yourself a moment. If you stop thinking about your body and start feeling about your body, you will get in touch with your chi. And so there I am. It's a perfect environment. I'm out on my surfboard. I'm in the ocean. So about an hour later, my surf session's over and I'm walking up the beach. 
And my wife kind of comes bombing down the beach and I'm like, oh, I hope everything's okay. And she looks at me, she goes, what was that? And I said, what are you talking about? She's like, I didn't know that was you. I said, well, thanks a lot. What are you talking about? She said, I have never seen you surf like that before in your life. That was amazing. Well done. And I said, thanks. I didn't really remember much of it. And it was because I had dropped in and I found that flow state. And I was able to allow my body to do the things that it needs to do. And I think that's a really powerful thing that I bring to my clients. So if I have clients who have to give that sales pitch, who want to go on that interview, who want to go on that date, uh, who want to do anything with excellence... It's not in your head, it's in your body. And you have to allow your brain to do what it does, but drop in your body and that's where you really find flow state and that's where you find your excellence. Well, and I think, you know, uh, we're, we're talking about golf or surfing, but certainly that flow state exists in the work environment as well. Sure. I think any of us um, who've been uh, in front of a customer or a supplier or in a negotiation um, have had moments where it just worked. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, you, you could read the client, mm -hmm. um, you, you sort of knew where to take it. Uh, the negotiation just sort of flows naturally. Mm -hmm. Uh, the answers just seem to be there. You're talking about intuition, intuition. Yeah. And I mean, I've experienced that myself. I've never, I don't know that I've ever consciously thought about it in terms of how I show up in my body. Mm -hmm. But if I'm honest about it, the times that that happens are not times where I'm exhausted and stressed. They're times where I feel integrated and calm. And so um, when we're talking, you know, to a, a population of our employees about how, you know, I, living in the flow state, you know, uh, maybe Eckhart Tolle can do that, but, you know, the, us mere mortals, that's a tough place to stay. It sure is. Um, but certainly, and one of the reasons I was really excited to, to, to talk to you uh, today is, I do believe with with mindfulness practices, we can all cultivate that flow state at work more frequently, you know, just by being conscious of it, just by being conscious that this is available to me. And what can I do in my life to cultivate it uh, and make it more accessible? Um, and so what are some real practical ways? I mean, is it my morning ritual? Is it, you know, uh, taking a 10-minute a mindfulness break, you know, mid-morning? Is it uh, limiting my screen time? Is it walking outside at lunch and just, you know, being in the sun? I mean, what are some things that are real practical? Knowing that, you know, we've got a business to run mm -hmm. and we can't all, you know, uh, sit Indian style outside in the parking lot all day long. I nope. mean, we, we have to interact with our technologies. Uh, we have to be responsive to customers. We have mm -hmm. to answer telephones. But um, when you're working with your corporate clients uh, and trying to help them cultivate this flow state at yep. work, what are some real practical things that you can share with, with our audience that, you know, you've seen work? So in conjunction with the mindfulness piece, and, and by the way, I think all of those things, all those practices are great, whichever ones work for you. I think if you're going to have a morning ritual or you're going to do something at work, you should tailor that thing that, cause I like people talk about journaling. I think it sounds great. And I've got a bunch of journals with about four or five pages written on them, but I don't actually use them. It doesn't work for me. 
journaling works for some people, it doesn't work for others. And so you should cultivate that and make that thing your own so that it really speaks to you and makes you feel like that's something I really can't wait to get to, that, that ritual that kind of puts you in that place. But the thing that I really talk to people about that's maybe derivative uh, for, for, for me as a therapist and, and, and frankly as a corporate coach is I ask the question, how do you show up? Not, not like what are you wearing or, or what car you're driving um, or how you got there, but what part of self do you show up in? And that's often a head scratcher for people. Like, what do you mean? What part of me do I show up in? Do you, do you mean there's different parts of the self? Yeah, absolutely. The brain is a modular organism. It's a modular problem solving or organism uh, akin to the Swiss army knife. Uh, so says uh, evolutionary psychologist Robert Kurzban. I need to make sure that I uh, give the credit where credit is due. He said that the, the brain is like a, a Swiss army knife, or if you want a more modern um, example, the cell phone. So for instance, if I want to send an email and I'm in my Instagram account, I don't have the skills or abilities in, that I need. I can know about those skills and abilities over there in my uh, um, email, but I'm an Instagram. And so those are the tools that are available to me. So I have to mindfully pull up and out of that app and go over to my email if I want to send that email. Parts act the same way. And we have different sides of our personality. So I'm very different in this moment sitting here talking with you, Wes, than I am, say, like hanging out with my parents. I remember the first time my wife came home with me to meet my parents, those many years ago, and she was kind of shocked to meet this 17-year-old wisecracking kid that just liked to make my mom laugh, right? Because I make my mom laugh harder than anybody, and I love doing it. And she said to me, she goes, hey, by the way, who's the 17-year-old wisecracking kid? I said, oh, yeah, I do that when I'm here. And then there's a regressive quality to so many things. So, you know, you're very different here in this moment than you are hanging out with, with, with your kids or, you know, when you're out surfing with your buddies. Now, what the latest science on this is telling us is these are actually sub-personalities. And it becomes really interesting to mindfully ask, which side of me shows up? Who is the work version of me? Do I want to add things to that side of my personality? Do... Um, what side of me shows up when I'm nervous or when I'm stressed out? Because often we go into that fight flight response and a very protective side comes up, right? So if I'm feeling vulnerable, you can bet the protective side of me is going to come up to protect me from more vulnerability or wounding. We got to keep an eye on that because it dramatically affects how we do. I'll give you an example. Um, years ago, I was sitting for my licensing exam. And that's a big, hairy, 200-question test that's notoriously difficult and, and often not fair. Backstory on me is... Most tests are. Most tests are. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and backstory on me is I've never been good at standardized tests. Did very, very well in grad school and knew all the stuff. Been to all the lectures, read all the books, you know, finished very, very high in my class. Now, I'm sitting studying for this exam, and I'm failing miserably. I have no access, no access to the information that I know is in my head, in some compartment that I can't seem to find. Why? Because I'm freaked out. I got a new baby, a wife, hoping and praying that I can pass this test, right? Because we've put everything on this, everything. Um, it's going to take our whole lives to the next level. And so I'm sweating over that keyboard, and I'm seeing these questions, each one, dumber than the next, obviously put together by people who are trying to screw me up, and the four terrible answers that they've given me to, to, to use. 
And so I'm getting more and more triggered, as we like to say in my business, right? And so I stopped. I pushed the pause button. I got really mindful because I was getting desperate. I had to try something. Some of the stuff I've been teaching my clients in my, in my internship, I should use again. You might want to try those might things. Those things. Teaching yeah, them, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so um, I stopped and I asked myself, okay, uh, what's going on here? What am I thinking? What am I feeling? I, I'm scared and I'm angry. And I had been working with this parts work, right? Because this, this parts perspective that I'm offering you today is rich in storied history and psychology. And it's, way, it's a way of thinking about the psyche. I said to myself, so what part of me is showing up? And I said, well, as near as I can tell, two sides of me, the scared kid who never did well on tests and the angry part of me that's there to protect him. And what I knew about those two sides of myself, as strange as that may sound, is neither of those guys had ever been to grad school. And so I went to my closet in desperation. I put on a shirt like I would wear to my internship and clothes that I would wear sitting with clients. And I sat in a chair and I pretended to talk to a client. I said, so tell me more about your mother and why don't you like her anymore? All that kind of thing until I finally felt myself shift a little bit, like something was different. Suddenly I wasn't as afraid. Suddenly I wasn't as angry. And I got up and I walked across the room very, very gingerly so as not to shake anything loose that I might have created in my brain. And I sat back down to the computer. And I kid you not, Wes, it was like Russell Crowe in A Beautiful Mind. Suddenly all of the all of the stuff made sense, right? Like all of a sudden these questions that before, not 10 minutes before, were there to trip me up and were traps, suddenly looked like breadcrumbs. And to a, to a, to a, to a question, I started getting, the, 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 getting them right where before I was getting them wrong. And so I knew on, day, on test day, it wasn't about studying the material more. It wasn't about learning how to take standardized tests and practicing that so much as it was making sure that I showed up in the right version of myself. And so this is what I teach people when they want to excel, when they want to find flow state, when they want to do better or well at anything, whether it's making that sale or, or creating that deal, whatever that is, you have to know how you show up. And if you don't, you're missing a very, very key and fundamental component in your own success. So... Often this creates more questions than answers. <laughs> no, no. I think this is really good stuff. I mean, you know, uh, really uh, delving into the different parts of your psyche and how you show up for, you know, because how I show up for my children and my wife and how I show up for Atlantic Packaging, they're all versions of Wes, but, sure. you know, they uh, certainly how people know me at work is not the same way that my kids know me. <laughs> um, I don't know that most of us think about it very consciously it's just sort of an unconscious shift right and, and that I, leaves us wide open for all kinds of calamity well and and what it yeah exactly i mean what it what it leaves us open for and you've told me this before it's like who are you when you touch the doorknob when you get home from work right are you are you work west <laughs> are you work lair mm -hmm. or are you you know father or husband, you know, are you and, tired and dragged out West? That's, you know, had 10,000 emails and, you know, 40 people nagging at you. Now you're going to have two or three more people that might seem like they're nagging at you, but they just want your attention. If you're in the wrong side of yourself, you're going to see that through that filter, right? Through that tired, ragged out version of yourself. And it's going to, you're going to be short. You're going to have short time. You're not going to have a lot left in the tank. And quite frankly, they deserve you to find that extra gear. Sure. And so I stop and I put my hand on the door and I take that breath and I go, where is that extra gear? What, where is happy to see you? I've missed you all day, dad. If I don't do that, 
I do, I tend to, to lean into the other because it's just easier on autopilot. That's what we will do. You know, and we've talked, you know, in terms of mindfulness, but I think also, I mean, maybe this is just semantics, but it's on some level conscious awareness, you know, some conscious awareness of how I'm showing up in each one of these situations. Mm -hmm. Um, I think, you know, traditionally when I hear the word mindfulness, I'm thinking about, you know, whatever seated meditation or breath work or whatever else, but this is sort of taking it to another place where it's really about, the person, the side of myself that shows up for, for who, whoever it may be in my life. Um, and the more, it sounds like what you're saying is the more we consciously practice how we show up, the more natural it becomes. Sure. You know, the more you practice touching that doorknob, you know, and saying, Hey, this is the doorknob to the office. You know, I need to be work Wes or, you know, work Lair or whoever it may be you begin to program yourself that, that, you know, these are the qualities that I need to show up with to be the best version of myself. It's right. And again, if you don't, you invite all sorts of stress through not doing well at the thing that you want to do well, whether they're the relationships at home or the sale that you want, you want to make. And I, I like to say, you know, look, you wouldn't show up. I don't think Wes, um, at the gym with your evening gown on wouldn't do it. It would be an appropriate dress. It would be an appropriate attire, right? Sure. We can, I don't wear an evening gown by the way, but Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Um, no, I, uh, I get your point. you get my point. So what we want to do is know that it, through practice, through mindfulness based practice, we can actually change, uh, how we show up. Like we change our clothes, quite frankly. And I know again, that's not how we typically think about, um, our walk in life, but the psyche is broken up that way into sub personalities. We have on average of 60,000 thoughts every single day. Mindfulness would dictate that you be aware of all of those. Now for me, those odds are stacked against me. I'm probably not, that's going to be an onslaught and I'm going to miss out on that. So with this type of thinking, with this type of practice, we kind of cut out the middleman on that. And we show up in the side of ourselves that typically thinks the way that we, the way we need ourselves to think, if you will, right? So if I need to be more compassionate, as a, as a for instance, if I need to be more empathetic and understanding, I know that I have a side of myself that does that. I also know that I have a side of myself that doesn't. And so when I'm working with people in relationships, personal relationships, for instance, and you see a couple who grouse at each other and bicker and all those things, they're showing up in protective sides of self quite naturally. You know, the vulnerability of a love relationship will often dictate that you try to protect yourself from that vulnerability. Well, if you keep showing up like that, you're just going to be two people that fight all the time. And the, the same is true if you go to work and you don't like your boss or you don't like your colleagues or you can't stand that client. You should look at how you show up to that relationship. And so what I do is I have people unpack difficult relationships in their work life in their personal life, but certainly in their work life. And I asked the question, if you were to show up to that relationship a little bit differently, if you were to show up in a side of yourself that was your more healthy, more emotionally intelligent side, more mindful side, what would that look like? What would you be doing differently? How would it feel in your body? And we start accessing that, that, that sub personality and start practicing to show up in that way differently. And you know, that's when we really invite success. When you work with your clients, especially corporate and clients, um, you know, I'm assuming that, that there's a fair amount of, of, of practice around conflict resolution. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I know like in, in a work environment, con conflicts, you know, 
happen every single day and it's, you know you're dealing with uh, a boss or a coworker mm-hmm. and it's a little different than conflicts with friends or family sure. i mean because you're in a work environment and there are uh, there are different dynamics um talk you talk a little bit about you know just uh conflict conflict re- resolution in a work environment and healthy ways to, and, and I think you've touched on a lot of it about how you show up, but, mm-hmm. um, just, you know, if, if I'm in a situation at work where, um, I've gotten sideways with a, with a fellow employee or, um, you know, my boss and I aren't seeing eye to eye, I feel like I'm not being heard, mm-hmm. you know, healthy ways to, uh, first, you know, approach that situation. Um, and I mean, are, are there strategies around conflict resolution that you've seen work, uh, in, in corporate environments? And I'm sure a lot of it translates to what we've been talking about, but if you could just expand on that a little bit. Yeah. So you're talking about like conflict re- resolution as far as like difficult conversations. If I'm going right. to have it. Yeah. So I think, I think, and sorry to interrupt, but I think what happens a lot and I see it in my own work environment where, uh, Two people are having an issue or um, there's someone who's having an issue with their boss, but there's a fear associated with with addressing that problem, you know, so it festers or it never gets resolved. And then there's this sort of underlying energy that, you know, really, you know, if we just sit around the table and say, hey, what's really going on here? You know, maybe it was a misinterpretation or maybe maybe someone spoke out of turn and it had nothing to do with the other person. It had something to do with, you know, what was going on at their home, you know, but uh, finding ways to come to the table and have honest discussions about, you know, things that are going on in the office um, to hopefully uh, have more healthy communication and, and, and less less conflict. Well, right. And, you know, companies that are employing mindfulness-based practices with their employees are showing a lot, lot less workplace churn due to conflict. It's not that they don't have it. Um, it's that they, that they know how to do it, right? And so these formerly polarizing moments are actually can become galvanizing moments. I know that's hard to believe when you're thinking about, oh, we're having this conflict and this, this thing that, that, that has, has yet to be resolved, but it's actually true. Um, it's not that we we shouldn't fight. As a matter of fact, people who like couples who come to me and say to me, well, we never fight. I'm like, you are insane. You should absolutely fight. <laughs> That's a problem. It's, yeah, it's a problem. <laughs> you should fight. It's not, it's not if it's how, sure. right? How do you fight? And so whether I'm dealing with, oops, sorry, whether I'm dealing with a couple or I'm dealing with, um, a, a corporation, I'll draw a Venn diagram on the board of two circles intersecting. One circle is one party. One circle is the other person. And I'll put X's and O's in each one of those circles. And I'll have this shaded area. That's any given conversation. Let's call it a difficult conversation. Riffing on what I was saying earlier and not to belabor the point, you've got to know how you show up there. Most people don't. They just sort of show up in their knee-jerk reaction, scared, maybe they're angry, and that's going to have a particular result, right? Or or you're just going to avoid that altogether because you don't have the skills to show up in that conversation in the side of you that's the healthy, uh, emotionally intelligent, and mindful side. You have to show up in those places, in in those conversations with a mind that can be changed. You have to be able to listen uh, and validate someone else's experience. You have to be able to hear things that, that you don't particularly love, maybe about yourself, something you did that, that wasn't your intention, a feeling that you created. Those are hard conversations. And so if you're going to show up in a part of you that that's protective and, and argumentative and wants to win the battle, well, you might win the argument, but you'll lose the war on that ultimately. And so th- when I get people talking like this from these sides of themselves that are more compassionate, more empathetic, more understanding, 
they typically have new conversations about old stuff. And so to to a conversation that, that goes like this, that I'm able to coach these people into these roles, they'll say to their colleague, partner, friend, whatever, business partner, they'll say, I've never heard you say that before. And the response to that is always, I've said that a thousand times, <laughs> right? right. And, the, and the other person will well, I've never heard it like that. And I'll say, it's because of the filter. You're filtering it through a different part of you. You're hearing it in a different way. You're not taking that as a, as a criticism of you anymore. You're just, you're, you're, you're hearing this person for the first time in a really open and honest way. And so there's a real power and being able to do this, um, especially for colleagues, especially for difficult conversations. And so we really cut down the workplace churn. And you know what else it does? It builds trust, right? And I can't tell you, you know, the numbers that come back on companies that are investing in trust and creating trust like this, those formally, again, those formerly polarizing moments that now become galvanizing ones. It's like, we've been through some stuff together. I can trust you to pick up your end of the stick and not just point the finger at me. Come on, how are we doing now? We're doing great. Well, and I think, you know, uh, a lot of that too is, is about empowering people. You know, when one of the things we've tried to do with our wellness program, and I do think it translates into healthy communication, but um, it is, is also just healthy lifestyle in general. I mean, I think people tend to um, be able to access um, these parts of themselves and show up in a more authentic way if they are healthier, you know, like, I mean, if you're taking care of the vessel, you know, I know that's worked for me. I mean, if, if you are eating properly and you're getting enough exercise and you're getting enough sleep and you're managing your stress, your ability to show up, um, from a more authentic place, um, if your body is stressed and in a state of, of stress because of dis-ease, it's more difficult to, um, to, to, to show up and, and be empathetic and, and, and be open and understanding. And so, um, it's one of the things I really like about, um, where, where health and wellness is headed. It is, it is looking at the whole person, um, and how we can, can all show up uh, better at work and, and in our lives. Well, I like to say that if you don't make time for your, uh, your health, you will make time for your illness. And that's that, you know, self-care and the words self-care, you know, we, it's been an eye roll for, for some time, I think. And, you know, oh yeah, self-care, I'll make time. If, if I had time, if, if you don't make time for that, you will make time for your illness. And, um, there is a Japanese practice known as Ikigai. Are you familiar with that? I'm not. You're not. See, look at, look at that. Teach me something <laughs> new every day, brother. So the practice of Ikigai. And that is, it's a, it's a, it's a practice of, and look, our Western minds will look upon this as play sort of superfluous. Is that the right word? Did I say that right? Superfluous. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, uh, uh, Activity um, and stuff that doesn't really matter. Um, But in the blue zones uh, around Okinawa, I believe um, there's a blue zone there. Explain blue zone real quick. For, for blue those zone is where people are living the longest and they're living the healthiest lives. They are, you know, people who there's relatively low incidence of cancer, of, of heart attack. You know, they don't have a lot of stress. Um, and so they're living well into their hundreds. And I'm, I'm not saying well as in years into their hundreds. They are living years, but they're living well in their hundred. They're well, even though they're a hundred plus and they're, they're living well and they're healthy. Like, like that old die young at a ripe old age. Exactly. Right. Well, one of the things they practice there is Ikigai. 
and it's one of the things that I bring into my corporate environments. And I have, you know, people kind of, I really push this one and I'm like, you got to find your ikigai. And it's, it's the thing that you do just because you love doing it. I'll call it your well, go to your well. We do not go to our well. We know that we, we all have a well. It might, it could be anything. It could be golf. It could be surfing. It could be meditation. It could be anything that just makes your heart sing. As I say, just for the mere fact that I just enjoy doing it. And we very rarely just allow ourselves space and time to do that. And it's incredibly effective in, in, in releasing and getting rid of stress. Um, and again, it's, it's, it's a well uh, for us to go to when we are feeling ragged out, when we feel like we don't have anything left to have that. Call it a hobby if you want. Maybe it's playing music. I don't know what it is for you. But I encourage all the people in my, in my practice to find their well, to find their ikigai, find that thing that you do, that you would do, whether you were getting paid or you weren't. Um, that's the thing you would do. And to, to lean into that as much as you possibly can, allow yourself time to play. I, I, I love that, especially um, as it relates to the work environment. Mm-hmm. I think that uh, historically this idea of self-care was sort of looked at as, you know, I'm taking time away from work. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, mm-hmm. I, you know, for 50 hours a week, I'm here to work, but, you know, but, you know, understanding that and and the studies show people are more productive if they take some time to take care of themselves and to have a stress release and to do the thing that makes their heart sing and do that on a pretty regular basis and it does not mean that you you know kick off every Friday to go play 18 holes of golf that's not what we're talking about but taking moments throughout the week to practice self-care and occasionally Mm -hmm. you know maybe taking a self-care day just because you know what you need it you know um and you know that's something that um you know as at, at Atlantic and I think a lot of organizations that are forward thinking is something that we've got to be, continue to promote is that self care is is really important because if you are not taking care of yourself if you are constantly stressed out you're just not going to be able to perform at work as well and it's not all about wanting our employees to be the top performers all the time although we want people to perform well it's really about people feeling um, you know that their job matters, mm-hmm. you know, and that they feel empowered mm-hmm. and that they feel um, that what they do makes a difference. And, um, you know, I know when we look at uh, where we're headed as an organization, one of the things that I think a lot about is is what is what does it mean to be Atlantic Packaging, you know, and what are we doing as an organization um, that has meaning in the world, you know, and we've, we've we began to evolve our wellness program into lots of different areas. We're doing some philanthropic things now, for instance, that have become a part of this. But uh, we did a big blood drive here recently where, you know, we the whole company uh, donated blood. And so uh, beginning to expand wellness to what are we doing for not just the organization, but our community and, and the greater world. Um, sustainability, uh, you know, we're in the packaging business and sustainability and taking care of the planet. I mean, that's becoming a bigger and bigger part of uh, one of the core tenets of who we're trying to be as an organization. And um, those things, to me, parallel self-care as well. You know, the, the folks that work here feel like the organization is moving in a direction and continues to uh to promote uh, core values that are important uh, for all of us to feel good about the uh, organization that we, we represent. 
you know, we're, we're seeing, especially with the millennial generation, you know, one of the, the stats on them is that it's not just what they're doing at work that's important. They want to feel this generation like what they're doing doesn't just stop at their desk, that the company that they work for has an eye on things like the planet has an eye on the bigger picture. And ultimately what that what that uh, pans out into is people feeling like they're doing more. And it does make them feel better about what, about being at work. And you know, you said um uh you know, it's not all about making uh, you know, the bottom line and 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 doing always doing a better job or whatever it was you, I can't remember exactly the quote, but along those lines, I think it's really important that you guys are making space for people to show up holistically and to be really happy in the job that they're doing. Because look, if you're not doing your job well, if you're not happy in, in your job, we, again, we spend 90,000 hours over any given lifespan doing what we do, one third of our lives doing what we do. And in 90,000 hours, 90,000 hours over any given lifespan. That's a lot. That's a lot. Look, a lot hours. if I'm not, if I'm not happy at my job, that doesn't live and die at my desk. I'm going to take that home to my family. I'm going to take that home to my community. I'm not going to be a happy camper throughout my life. And so, you know, the idea that Atlantic and companies like yours who are, you know, not just looking at the bottom line, um, you're looking at uh, employee wellness in the way that you are. That's, that's an extraordinary thing. I think it's going to help us culturally, quite frankly, culturally. Well, we certainly don't have it all figured out. It's been a great journey for us. Um, you yeah, but know, you're asking the question. We're asking the questions. Uh, we continue to try to take a lot of uh, input and feedback and um, really uh, can't thank you enough for your perspective. Um, it's been really refreshing to uh, to hear from you today. And, um, you know, these are all things that I think we can all, um, you know, listen deeply to and let sink in and, um, and continue to promote, uh, within our organization. So, uh, you referenced a lot of, uh, a, a lot of books and, and publications. Um, Joe Dispenza, mm -hmm. um, I love that book by the way. Breaking the uh, Habit of Being Yourself. Yeah. There's or Being Supernatural. Being Supernatural is the one that I've read, which is, which, yeah, there. that one will blow your hair back. <laughs> um, it's dense. Yeah. Um, but we will, uh, we'll include some of that in the, in the show notes as well for people that are interested. Great. Um, and, um, I think we're about to the end of our time, but, um, Lair, do you have any closing remarks, anything you want to leave our audience with before we, we close out here? I think we talked about it, but I'll say it again, that, um, we don't think about our, our, our relationship as a living, breathing thing, uh, to what we do. And it's, it's such a part of who we are, you know, and again, um, if I'm meeting you for the first time, second only to maybe my name and where I'm from, I'm probably going to talk to you about what it is that I do. And I think we have to uh, take a good long look at um, our relationship to our work if we want to make sure that we are the healthiest, happiest versions of ourselves that we can be. Great thoughts. Well, again, thank you, Lair. Really appreciate you coming right, to buddy. see us. And, Thanks uh, for having me. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Thank you.